This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 20 of the SuperAge podcast. We're going to be dropping this around January the 26th, 2021. I hope everybody had a great week. Um, did anybody watch the inauguration? It was pretty amazing. How about the poet, huh? Wow. Um, we wrote a little bit about her in the newsletter last week. So impressive. Oh, my gosh. Um, just loved her. Uh, this week on the show, we have Dr. Morgan Levine. And Dr. Levine helped create the index test for Elysium Health. And the index test essentially measures one's biological age. How, like, how fast are you aging? And I took this test about a year ago. I was 61 at the time. According to index, my uh, my actual or my biological age, excuse me, was 56. So therefore, I was aging at something like 0.86. And I'll be taking that test again, probably a little later this year, just to see like, am I on track? Am I aging the way I think I am? Am I improving? Am I not as well? Because as you know, as Dr. Ronnie Stangler, who we had on a few episodes ago. She describes all of 2020 as this, you know, epigenetic challenge, um, that there's all this epigenetic risk factors just from the year itself. So we'll see. We're going to check that out. And uh, just a little background on Dr. Morgan Levine. Uh, Dr. Levine is at the Yale School of Medicine, where she's an assistant professor, aging researcher at the Department of Pathology. She's also a member of the Yale Combined Program of Computational Biology, and also She's a member of the Yale Center for Research of Aging. She was, um, early on, she did her postdoc in uh, human genetics at UCLA. And she worked with uh, Steve Horvath, who is roughly known as the king of clocks. Um, he's not the inventor of the methylation clock, but um, he's somebody who's done a lot of work with it. So um, the reason we want to talk to Doc Levine today is she contributed some work in a paper that was released in Nature recently, shared with Dr. Sinclair, David Sinclair, and some other people, and some really remarkable work that they've done that's going to have, a, I think, a rather profound effect on health in general and very much on aging. We're going to get to Dr. Levine in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by the amazing people at Cary Grant. Kerrigan is a wellness beauty company that I've been exposed to for about the last three months. I've been using their products. I've gotten to know the company. I've gotten to know the, the management there, the people who work there, their products. Um, and I got to say, this company walks the walk. Um, when they talk about green beauty or natural beauty, I have never seen a company that goes to the extent that they do. And their products are fantastic. I use their serum on my face. I use their body oil on the rest of me. And the thing that I'm really just super jazzed about is their sunblock. And any of you who know me, you know that I am a connoisseur of sunblock. <laughs> I've tried it all. I, I know a lot about sunblock. This is the best stuff I've ever used. It smells great. 
It goes on my skin great. I put it on every day. Um, huge fan. So if you're into it, check them out. Um, Cary Grant is spelled K-A-R-I-G-R-A-N. And for Aegis listeners, you get 20% off site-wide, any of the products. Um, and it's all great stuff. So that's 20% off at Cary Grant. Use the word Aegist20 at checkout. That's A-G-E-I-S-T, the number's 20 at checkout. Um, let me know how you feel about the sunblock. Are you like as in love with it as I am? <laughs> I think you will be. Hey, Morgan, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks, David. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Thank you. So for, for the people who don't know about you and your work, tell me, where, where do you work and, and what do you work on? Um, so I'm a researcher and professor at Yale in the uh, School of Medicine. And our focus really in my lab is studying the aging process and really kind of the underlying molecular changes that drive the aging process. So what is happening on the cellular level that then makes all these changes that we see kind of at the whole person level? Um, and I'm also involved in a company called Elysium Health, where I'm a bioinformatics advisor, where we're actually trying to develop w ways that people can actually test kind of how they're aging to really better understand kind of their overall health profile. Is this what people mean by epigenetic aging? Yes. So, so what we measure is epigenetic aging. So basically what that means is we're measuring these chemical changes that are happening on the DNA. So it's not actually changes to the DNA sequence itself, but just these kind of chemical tags that either get added or removed as we age. And this will really change how the cells function. It'll change the identity of our cells and it'll change kind of the genes that each cell is expressing. So would you say as, as we age, our, our DNA stays constant and then the epigenetic effects are what change? Did I, did I get that right? Yeah. So for the most part, our DNA is fairly stable. I mean, granted, you will have some kind of mutations that can arise in different cells. Um, but in contrast to the changes we see in what we call the epigenome, it, it, they're very small. So we can think of the DNA sequence itself as static and stable over the life course, but this epigenetic pattern is really dynamic and it changes very strongly as a function of age. And so what are the things that would affect an epigenome? The, your environment, your behavior, things like that? Yeah, so there's a number of different things that can affect it. So it's actually the way that our bodies can take in information from our environment, either the environment within the body or our external environment and actually adapt um, to function better in this. But at the same time, you can also have uh, damaging changes to the epigenome. So sometimes our cells don't get it right or the wrong pattern is copied over. So we think this too is why we see these changes with aging kind of over our life course. But things like smoking, um, what we eat, our exercise patterns, we think can drastically affect kind of the epigenetic patterns across cells. And is, so you've been involved um, with something called a biological age clock. Mm -hmm. um, and so tell me about that. That's fascinating. How does that work? What's it measuring? Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, most people, when we think of what your age is, you think of your chronological age, which is kind of the number of years since you were born. But actually what's much more important for your health is what we would consider your biological age. So it's actually on a 
cellular and molecular level, what age do you most resemble in a population? So we've um, worked on developing measures using epigenetics or DNA methylation to actually estimate this in a person. Um, you can do it in multiple tissues. And this actually ends up being a much better predictor of health and wellness than just knowing your chronological age. And how did you get involved in this like clock stuff? Um, so I've been interested in aging uh, for a very long time. So my father was much older when I was born. So I think it was something I've always been innately worried about. Um, so yeah, I've just been fascinated. Is there a way you can actually intervene in this process that, that is such a universal process? Every living thing ages. Um, and then I really got involved as a PhD student in trying to define biological age. At that time, I was using kind of clinical biochemistry measures. Um, but then seeing uh, these epigenetic clocks that were just coming out around that time, I became really excited about this because the cool thing about this is you can measure it in, in any tissue or cell type, not just a one person. And you use the exact same kind of equation, regardless of what, whether I'm measuring it in brain or skin. Um, so it, it does seem to be this kind of universal kind of clock that somehow seems to track aging. And to me, that was just the mystery of that was very fascinating. And I, Steve Horvath's name comes up sometimes. Yes. Was that where you was that where you were doing your PhD work? Um, so I actually did my postdoc uh, with Steve Horvath. So I did my PhD at USC, um, where I was starting on kind of these biological age measures, and then um, right around the time I was finishing my PhD, Steve Horvath's uh, epigenetic clock paper came out, and so I ended up moving across town and um, doing a postdoc with Steve, where, and I was there for two years before moving to Yale. He, um, you may not know this, but I, I, um, I went to Oktoberfest at Steve's house once <laughs> and they all wore like lederhosen and oh, yes. it, it, was, it was insane. And he has a clock, but he has this like giant cuckoo clock that he introduced me to as being the Horvath clock. So, oh yeah, he also has, yeah, he, I, he really is. So he, his, um, clock, his famous kind of Horvath clock was actually not the first epigenetic clock, but he really coined that term and, you know, I think really grew that field into what it is today. He's a funny guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his, I, I, I have to just tell you like at this, so at this Oktoberfest thing, which was fascinating, it was all filled with like, like very high level science nerds and <laughs> so <laughs> dressed in lederhosen. <laughs> and so I wanted to see like, what are the world's foremost longevity scientists eat? And so oh. I went in the kitchen, his wife showed me, and it was like, it was like sausage and cake. And I <laughs> said, really? And they're like, yeah, we're all gonna die anyway, eat cake. <laughs> yeah, I think Steve, Steve seems to really like German sausage. I remember at one point he said he came back from Germany, he was really excited and he got to go <laughs> on real German sausage. And I think his wife is, I've heard is a very good cook. So yeah, I, the, yeah. the cake was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me about um, methylation and its role in aging. Why, why are we interested in this? Um, yeah, so the, the really cool thing, so again, meth, DNA methylation is a type of epigenetic modification. And 
The thing that I find fascinating is, so again, basically every cell in your body is essentially the same DNA, but what makes a cancer cell, a cancer cell or a stem cell, a stem cell, or, you know, a neuron or neuron is the epigenetic pattern. That's what's defining these different cell types. We also find that it, it is what defines a young cell versus an old cell. So there's some pattern that is changing that basically gives an old cell its phenotype that's different from a young cell. Um, so if we can actually, you know, when we measure this in an individual, regardless of which tissue, what we're really trying to say is kind of what proportion of these more older cells does this sample have versus kind of this more younger uh, phenotype or features? I see. So that's that's the equation that's used to for the to test biological age. What that yeah. ratio is? Yeah. Fascinating. And um, I was stalking you on Twitter. Um, apologies. <laughs> what else do you do on Twitter? No. Uh, and I I saw that you know that you said you mentioned something about you made some progress about that a, a new clock for mortality disease prediction. Is there? Can you tell us anything about that? Yes, yeah, so we're we're constantly trying to get better and better at measuring these things. So so the issue with measuring biological age um, is that it's what we call a latent concept. So we actually don't know the truth, right? There's no way to actually test. Do we do a perfect job at at measuring this? Um, so we're constantly striving to get closer and closer to this kind of um, hypothetical. Um, so yes, we've been working on developing clocks that we think are better estimates of biological age. So because they seem to be better predictors of either disease risk or mortality risk. Um, and the way we're doing this right now is looking at all the research that's happened in the epigenetic clock world for the past decade. So there's been dozens of these clocks that have been developed. And what my lab is really interested in is taking all that information and saying, what, where are these, where are the overlapping features in some of the clocks? So where do they agree? Where do they disagree? And how can we use that information to actually figure out what a better epigenetic clock result would look like? So some of, some of the information in each clock is noise or just random error, but can we kind of combine them all to figure out what the real signal is and remove kind of the random error that's captured in each clock, if that makes sense. So how do you do that analysis of that noise versus signal to determine what's actually useful? Um, so we're doing this all computationally using AI and machine learning. So it's employing all these different algorithms to kind of finding these overlapping signals when we look across these clocks in a variety of different tissue types. And then once we have, once we can kind of parse out these different signals, then we say, okay, which ones can we recombine to get better prediction of whatever these different outcomes are? And forgive me, because I'm I'm not a researcher on this, but no, it's <laughs> so, even, even people in science, this is a little bit of a yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're comparing this to a, like a a large data set of people who have been have yeah. had their clocks tested, and then seeing where they're actually at, what their disease outcomes were is that did i get that right yes so so we have a bunch of data sets um some are epigenetic clocks measured in blood some are in various other tissues adipose liver 
Um, and the nice thing about the epigenetic clocks is once you measure DNA methylation, you can estimate any of them essentially. So you don't have to go and mess and estimate this clock and then a different one and a different one. We can just take methylation data, calculate 20 different clocks. And then yes, and then we're kind of parsing it and then saying for all these people in this data set, we know in the next 10 to 20 years, who's gonna die and when, or we know who's gonna develop some disease and when. And so we're saying which of these pieces can predict how soon that'll happen to an individual. This sounds fantastically useful. I if, mean, if people want to know when, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, because yeah. You, 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 you have a window there, right? Where you can adjust your behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So that's you, the goal. Yeah. You can go from, you can change lanes and Im improve the outcome if you want mm -hmm. to. Yes. Um, so that's a little bit, I think, the exciting thing about doing this work with Elysium, right, is you know, before, yes, these are really great research tools. You can use them in clinical trials. We can use them to understand biology, but really where the power of these is going to be is in kind of intervention and kind of personal um, health, essentially. So people can measure these and because we think they're modifiable, because we think that they have some input from environment, it, it, we're not giving you kind of a death sentence, right? You can get your information try and change it. And then hopefully that will translate to improved kind of health and well-being um, over the long term. Would you see at some point in the future when I go in to get my physical, I, I have a test like this. And then my doctor looks at this and he's able to say something to me about it. I, is, would, is that something we're looking towards? Yeah, I, I mean, I really think that's probably where the future lies. I mean, we can really quantify ourselves and like understand all these different dimensions of our health. Um, that's actually another thing that, you know, we're working on with Elysium is, you know, not just giving someone a single biological age, but really understanding how you're aging in different systems and different processes. So you're getting kind of a whole picture or really understanding kind of the mosaic of your biological ages. Um, rather than just giving a single number. And the exciting thing about that in the future is that we actually think based on your personal profile, we should get a better idea of which behaviors would be best to be um, to kind of optimize your health versus someone else. Because you might, you might be doing really well in a few domains, but maybe not as well in, in one domain versus someone else who has kind of a different uh, combination of profiles. And Based on that, we actually think we can start to understand kind of which behaviors are going to be best for which person. Could you give us a guess on a timeline when that would happen? <laughs> um, so this is really um, kind of hinging on data availability. So to be able to kind of use AI to build these, these really powerful predictors, you need a lot of good data on people who are doing health behavior changes and, and measuring um, epigenetic age continuously over time or sequentially over time. Um, so, so we are working to develop kind of these multi-profile measures right now, and we're hoping to put a bunch out uh, this year. Um, but in terms of the prediction, that's probably going to come as people are, you know, taking the test and if they opt into research, and recording what they're doing in their everyday life. Um, so much like um, 
something like uh, Spotify would say, oh, people who listen to the same music as you probably will like this song as well. We think that as kind of the database grows, we can say people who have a similar profile to you and make this change have this kind of change in their epigenome versus some other thing. So, so again, it'll, it'll really be kind of user dependent probably. Um, yeah, going forward. So, so give me a sense of the size of that data set. How many, how many people and how many metrics are you measuring? It sounds vast to me. Yeah, it, I mean, we're hoping it'll be vast, right? Um, so in terms of metrics right now, I think we're, we're hoping to put out, um, I can't remember the exact number, but you know, somewhere in the range of five to 10 different metrics for now. Um, we're measuring methylation in hundreds of thousands of sites. So that'll only increase as we develop more and more of these different measures. Um, but in terms of the number of people we would need, it's, it's kind of hard to say because we really need to see how, how much methylation responds to different behaviors to say how, how much we can actually comfortably tell someone that, you know, predict for someone what behaviors will matter. And is there an, um, an interact, so if, we, if there's, um, we have a methylation test mm -hmm. and then Say I also get my genome run. Mm -hmm. And then, so we have these two things. We have the, the underlying code, and then we have the epigenome that expresses this code on top of it. Is, is there a way to have these two sort of things interact with each other? Yeah. Um, so actually, there hasn't been that much research that I've seen, at least in aging, on kind of gene epigenome interactions. But yeah, right. that's an, that adds an entire other layer of kind of information um, that people can get. We aren't um, actually doing genetic testing at Elysium, but you know, hypothetically, if people you know go and do a 23andMe and actually get their raw data, there's no reason why this can't all be integrated in the future. That sounds like the holy grail. Yeah. I mean, then you got the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um, amazing. Well, what I really want, it, this is all fascinating, but what I really, what's exciting me is this piece that I saw in nature mm -hmm. about the mice. Um, and um, my reading of this was that uh, you had restored um, some damaged mouse vision. It, did I get, and so just walk us through this. How did you damage these poor mice? How did you damage their vision? And then what, what happened here? Yeah, so this is a study that um, came out of David Sinclair's lab at Harvard, and we were lucky enough to get to be involved and collaborate on this project, which is really exciting. So um, it kind of comes down to this idea of, can we reprogram old cells to be young again? Um, and I can go into that a little bit. So the idea in this paper that, so they looked at this very specific cell type in the optical nerve, um, and what they did is, you know, they damaged it, they did a, they crushed it. Um, I don't, we don't need to go probably into the gory details of that. Um, but then the question was, can these mice regrow their optical nerve and, and can they have their vision restored? Um, so there's this intervention called epigenetic reprogramming, um, where you use these different factors that are called the Amanaka factors. Um, 
and there's four of them, but really people have found you, you only need three of them. So in this study, they just use three of these factors. So you, you can get cells to express these factors. And what that does is it will take a, almost any cell type. So you can take a skin cell, uh, in this case, a certain kind of neuron, and actually will convert that cell back into a, uh, something like an embryonic stem cell. So it, it like converts it all the way back to an, like an embryonic life cell. Um, and then actually you can then take those cells and turn them into almost any kind of cell you want. Um, but the thing about this paper is the idea that we can also reverse, in doing that, you're actually reversing some of the aging changes as well. So can you take a neuron and reverse some of those aging changes and then actually get a young neuron and then what, what happens to the mouse, to the system. So in this case, they applied, um, they used these three, what are called the Yamanaka factors. And what they found is that these mice were able to regrow um, these, their optical nerve and get restored uh, vision. And we also found we measured the epigenetic age in these cells, and we also see that that is reversed um, using this treatment. This is astonishing to me. Um, I, yeah. So, it, it, so that I, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. So, Absolutely. if you had damaged, um, my understanding is neurons aren't really great at doing this sort of thing normally, right? Mm -hmm. They don't normally regrow. Yeah. So past that's, a certain age, they're, yeah, they're not that's going it. to regrow. Yep. Fixed. But so it seems like here, it's like with a starfish, you cut part of it off and it regrew. Mm -hmm. But only after the, the Yamanaka factor. Extract. Yes. So the control mice did not regrow. Right. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... What, um, with these, with these mice did, um, with this, I'm, I'm going to forgive me all the language I'm going to use here, but so the application <laughs> of these three Yamanaka factors, yep. um, and did you run, um, aging tests on the overall mouse or just on the, those neurons? Yeah. So in this case, it was just on the neurons. So we didn't look at the overall mouse. I mean, they, so they did assess vision um kind of at the phenotypic level but we didn't we didn't look at aging epigenetic age in blood or anything like that um and i think for this one too the treatment was targeting these specific cells um but we're also doing some other work trying to reprogram different cell types and different organs and and our goal is to actually see does that rejuvenate the entire animal um, if you target kind of like a very important organ. So for instance, we're really interested in kind of liver. Can you actually rejuvenate the liver? And because the liver produces so many important kind of proteins and metabolites and lipids, does that, what does that have? What impact does that have in the entire animal? Incredible. And that, this is testing that's going on right now? Yes. Yeah, so right now, right now we're testing it in the dish, but our, our goal is okay. once we kind of get that to work, then we'll actually go to real Bring in the mice. mice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, and these, I saw in the paper that it was specifically older mice 
versus younger middle-aged mice. Talk to me about that. So the, the young, would you, would you have expected with a younger mouse that it could regrow the, the damaged neurons on its own and, but not the older mouse? So, so some of the mice were actually younger. So, so oh. they did do this damage in a younger mouse. They were still past the age at which they would regrow um, these neurons. So that happens really, <clears throat> excuse me, really early. Um, so, but we did see again when you damage even in the younger mouse, they'll regrow. But and then repeating it also in the older mice, we see it as well. Um, so yeah, it was consistent in both. This is so exciting. Um, and tell me about, were there any other disease states like glaucoma or anything like that that were affected by this? I, I keep using the word treatment. Is that the right word? Yeah, you can treatment. Okay. Intervention. Yeah. Intervention. Yes, yeah. I like intervention. That sounds right. Um, yeah, so they, I think they, they had a model of glaucoma as well in this, um, where again, yeah, they found that it restored vision in the mice when you treated with or when you had the intervention of using the three factors. So what's the downside? I, I know that I read something about like, if you do all, if you use all four of these Yamanaka factors, bad things happen. But if you just do the three, are there any like uh, other bad things that happen because of this? Yeah, so this is really, you know, where the science is, is trying to figure out how to do this as safely and efficiently as possible. So the fourth one that was actually left off of this study is actually an oncogene. So people are a little bit worried that if you're overexpressing this, this could actually cause cancer. Um, but then the other thing that's really been exciting in this field is this site. So the other issue is, you know, let's say in the case of the liver, if I took it, applied these, but I apply it for too long. You don't want to turn all your liver cells back to stem cells and then you don't have a liver. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't want to erase cell identity from your entire organ. Um, also, because then when the cells start differentiating and becoming, there, there's also this issue of getting what are called teratomas, which are like these weird tumors. So, so, so this isn't perfect technology yet. Um, but the exciting thing people have discovered is you can, you can do kind of this transient reprogramming. So you turn it on for a little bit, you let it rejuvenate. So the cells are just erasing the, the old signature, but not turning back into stem cells. And then you turn it off. And so, you know, there's this idea of how, you know, can we continuously do this? And so you're not converting all your liver cells back to stem cells, but you're converting old liver cells back to young liver cells. Um, we haven't, this isn't fully perfected. How, you know, how long do you leave it on? How many factors do you use? Are there other factors we haven't even discovered that would work better? Um, so this is a really ongoing field um, of study that people are really excited about. How are the mice doing? <laughs> uh, I think, the, well, the mice in that study? Yeah. Or, uh, so I, I do not think they're with us any longer. Oh, uh, the normal lifespan, yeah. right. Yeah, because to get um, the methylation data, they had to be, uh, they were sacrificed. Um, we are, for the liver study, we are planning to do a lifespan experiment. So, but that'll be a little while till we. What's a, a what's lifespan on a mouse? Um, a little over two years, I think for. Ah. Yeah. Way easier than a human. 
Yes. So yeah, it's doing a lifespan experiment on a human is not good, which is again, why we, we work to develop these biomarkers of aging that maybe you don't have to do a full lifespan experiment. So I, I feel really great that we're able to restore the vision of crushed optic nerves on mice. I think that, um, should I ever crush the optic nerve of a mouse? I know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> walk it over to Harvard. <laughs> walk it over to Harvard, please. My mouse, you got to help them out. Um, but by I let's upscale this a little bit. And so the exciting thing, of course, is you're talking about this. What am I thinking about me? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, um, you know, clearly that's, I mean, if that's what you're thinking, right? Yeah. Um, so w- what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we can, the, the same, it, this works for human cells in a dish. So we can reprogram human cells in a dish. We can do this transient reprogramming where you're, you know, not fully what we call de-differentiating or taking, losing the cell identity. Um, so, so this technology will work in human cells. There's no reason it, it wouldn't. Um, but really, I think where the things we need to overcome are figuring out kind of timing and dosage to really make sure it's, it's safe and also figuring out optimal factors to use to make it safe, but also more efficient. Um, and, and we also don't kind of know the limit of this yet. Like how many times can you do this to a cell population and does it become more, you know, less effective or more effective the more times you do it? Um, so there's some of these questions that still need to be answered. And then the other thing that, you know, we full, don't fully understand is, you know, we think this, this is working because it's changing the epigenetic pattern. But, you know, even though we've developed these epigenetic clocks and we can see that they predict different things, we still don't really know what this epigenetic code reflects. Like, what do these changes actually reflect in the cell? We can't, we haven't translated that kind of language yet. Um, So I think understanding that, understanding which changes are reprogrammable, which ones aren't, and what, what that means for the overall kind of cell tissue and ultimately kind of organismal health and aging. Is this exciting to you? Super exciting to me. No, it's very exciting. Um, yeah, it's, it's very fun to be working in this field right now. I, you know, as I'm, I'm sort of thinking forward to my science fiction mind here that, um, you know, a, being able to correct or change all this, these, this epigenetic damage um, or actually, in the case of the mouse, it wasn't epigenetic damage. You crushed it. Like, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> although some of it, so we did, there were actually two experiments. So one was just a damage induced experiment where it was crushed. And another one was you actually just looked at aging, oh. naturally aged mice. And we were able, again, to, um, there we weren't necessarily looking so much at regrowing damaged neurons, but we, we did see, um, reversal of the epigenetic age pattern in the old mice that had no damage induced on them. So the, so the next step is the, the, the mouse liver, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. to see what happens with a, like a central organ like that, mm-hmm. is there a systemic change to the yeah. mouse as a result of this? Exactly. Yeah. So, so, and there's people working on tons of other organs and tissue types as well. Um, but 
yeah, we're, we're, our goal is to do the liver and first just look at the liver itself. Um, look at kind of circulating, uh, blood factors, and then hopefully actually test epigenetic age in the liver and in, you know, tons of other tissues and organs to say, if we make an old liver young, does that impact aging in the brain or does that impact aging in the lungs or the skin or basically any kind of tissue or organ you can think of? Wow. Um, I can, I can see like if this gets figured out, um, there's a lot, there's, that's the end of aging. <laughs> or, <laughs> well, at least slow, it should slow should down. Slow it down. Yeah. And wow. And so, it, uh, what else is really exciting to you today? Um, this sounds all encompassing. I mean, is, is there anything else out there that's like super exciting to you? Um, I mean, there's a lot of ex super exciting things in, in both just science in general and age. I'm, I'm really excited about all the single cell, uh, technology. So the idea that before we would just measure these things in, you know, a whole sample of cells together, but now what you can actually do is measure whether it's epigenetics or gene expression in individual cells and really understand kind of the, the heterogeneity or the variability within a cell population and which are the cells that seem to be driving different kind of uh, traits um, and re really understanding this at a much more uh, granular level. Um, and then the other thing is really exciting and actually might relate to the Yamanaka factors is all the research coming out of um, what's called parabiosis experiments. Um, so for this, they actually initially they would connect the circulatory systems of two mice. So you take a young mouse and an old mouse and you connect their circulatory system. And the young mouse seems to get older and the old mouse seems to get younger. Um, and then they've shown now that you can just, you don't actually have to connect them. You can just exchange um, plasma between them. Um, so the, I, the mice prefer this a lot more than being sewn together. Um, but then even beyond that, uh, now they're trying to discover what is it in old versus young kind of plasma that's circulating that is doing this. And a lot of this can come back to the, the same things that the Yamanaka factors are doing. There might be something in old blood that kind of pushes cells to be older and something in young blood that pushes cells to be younger. So I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but there's some folks in Silicon Valley who um, have themselves, they, mm -hmm. they take the blood of younger people and they inject it. Yeah. Um, I guess this is what they're up to. Yeah. I, I think they're quite premature on this. Um, yeah. and actually, so ironically, my sister is a journalist and she was doing some investigative journalism on this and it seemed very fishy what they were doing. Um, so I'm not advocating that whatsoever. Um, and I, I'm not advocating that we start harvesting blood from children <laughs> to, <laughs> for the, to supply to the older population. Um, I think ideally the idea, we would want to figure out what the factors are and then just use those as targets, not actually have to take them from people. Vampirism. Yeah. 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 Exactly. We move beyond. Yeah. It's very, very, yeah. 
<laughs> very twilight or, or interview with a vampire, but we don't, yeah, that's not the ultimate goal here. Um, I just want to cir um, circle back to you to the work with Elysium and um, yes. the, the index test and the improvements that are happening there. Um, what do you, what do you, what's coming up and um, timelines and things like that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, our goal this year is to put out a bunch of other measures that really give people, you know, so far we put out um, just the index biological age measure, but we really want to expand that to give people a lot more information on themselves. Um, and the, the good thing about that is because they're all measured on the same platform, we can actually go back to people who have already taken the test and give them kind of the historical information on all these measures. So even if you took the test last summer, we can say, your um, sample last summer, you would have scored this on all these various tests. So um, in that regard, people shouldn't necessarily just wait till we come out with these measures because you'll still get them for any test you take. Um, and I think too, just as more people are taking this and, and if people opt into research, again, this really expands our ability to understand kind of um, health behaviors and how these map on to changes in these different epigenetic clocks and aging measures and just kind of understanding the whole, what the characteristics of a single individual and what that means for their health and yeah, what they should be doing. So I, I took the test about, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 62. I'm biologically 56. I guess that's good. It's better than 70. <laughs> yep. Um, and but if I, I, so there'll be new metrics coming out on that. Um, mm -hmm. And then if I take the test again, we'll be able to see the progression or decay rates of these various different indicators. Yes. So again, if people are taking it, even if you already took one and you're going to take it again, we'll still give you yeah. all these indicators for every time that you took it. So you'll be able right. to see the change um, for all these different indicators. Um, and, and also we're we're um, improving the biological age test, so the initial one. So that one will change a little bit, but we'll also provide you with the, the improved version from your past tests as well. That's fascinating. So, it's not gonna make you biologically 70 all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's been an epigenetically very damaging year. What can I say? A lot of stress out there. Yeah, that's um, true. But yeah. but I think I think that's super interesting. So if I get if I get like a, a panel of however many factors, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I'm just gonna make a number up six. Yeah. So you know, I would see the the you know the rate of change in each one of these. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's seems pretty actionable to me. Yeah. So that that's really what we're hoping, and we're we're hoping that we can really for every person tell them these are your your problem areas, these are your, where you're doing really well. And then people can really try and focus in on, you know, how do I address these, these areas first, the ones I'm doing pretty well on that maybe I should stick to what I'm doing for those. Amazing. What are you doing the rest of the day? Uh, so actually, so I'm in the middle of writing a book that's actually oh. due in one month. So I'm cranking and trying to get the last <laughs> chapter done. What's, what's your book? Um, ironically, it's on biological age um, okay. <laughs> and how to measure it and what you can use that for in terms of application and health behaviors and yep. Oh, so. brilliant. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. So, 
Well, I I know you're you're a very busy person, so I thank you so much for your time today. I just love the work you're doing. Um, thank you. I, I think it's tremendous. Yes, it, it it keeps me busy and it's very fun. So definitely enjoying it. Wonderful, uh, Morgan. Thank you for joining us today, and have have a wonderful rest of the day. And I can't wait to see the book. Thank you, David. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. It's really wonderful to have people of the caliber of Morgan Levine on the show. I'm super appreciative. And I want to welcome all of the new guests. The, uh, the podcast has really been growing. And I'm so appreciative to have all of you with us here on this journey. It's really great. Um, you know, and at, at any time, if you want to contact me directly, you can just email me, david at superage.com. If you have any questions, um, if any questions about uh, something that Dr. Levine said today, um, any comments on the show, guests that you would like to suggest, um, whatever you like. Um, send me an email, guarantee it'll get, re- it'll get responded to. Um, and if you haven't already, you might want to sign up for the Aegis newsletter, which is fantastic. And the way you do that is just go to the front of the Aegis website, and you can put in your name and email, and you'll get that every Thursday. And on the Aegis website, there's a find button up in the top, and you might just want to type in the word brain. I've written considerable over the last year about brain health. There's a lot of fantastic information there that may be of interest to you. Um, and you can also read about you know, our, our profiles, our health, fitness, culture, and travel sections. Um, if you can, please um, rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. It's really helpful to us. And maybe tell a friend. Um, let them know that you're enjoying this. Everybody, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye now.